I think it was just before Christmas that my 26-year-old son, Jonathan, and I were sitting on the deck at my house, and he said something to me about um, abortion, and he said, Dad, you know, one day in the U.S., we will have all awakened and realized just how wrong it's been. And he said, Roe v. Wade will be over with. And I looked at him and I said to him, I said, Jonathan, I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime. And he said this to me, pardon me for choking up because he's far more spiritual than I've ever been. He said, Dad, when that day comes, you don't want to have been silent on this subject all of those years. I think you better preach on it. And that has haunted me since Christmas that I make reference to it, but it's been a long time since I just addressed the subject that's so important to those of us who are human. I'm reminded of the fact that when Julie was 20 weeks pregnant with Rachel, so this would be a little more than a year before Jonathan was born, she developed gallstones, and she had to have her gallbladder removed while she was pregnant. I had never seen an ultrasound. This was 1994. And we went in and they did an ultrasound on Rachel at 20 weeks. So these were the images back in the 90s when they weren't as clear as they are today. And as we looked at the ultrasound and watched Rachel move in her mother's womb, my pro-life position, which I had had my whole life, was suddenly solidified, especially when I saw her put her thumb up to her mouth and start sucking her thumb. And it dawned on me, oh my goodness, this is my girl. And this life is precious and worth more to me than all the world. So I would never have guessed that six jurists would have what I consider to be the remarkable courage to issue the decision reversing Roe v. Wade as we saw this past Friday. I had another sermon planned for today, but when that news came out, my son's, Jonathan, my son's words bounced around in my head and I thought to myself, I'm a coward if I don't talk about this. Y'all have to excuse me. I'm on taking some kind of blood pressure medicine and my head is a little dizzy. I'm trying to decide, does that mean this is an even riskier sermon than I thought it was going to be? Or does it mean you're just going to give me a lot of sympathy and say, ah, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's about to faint. Anyway, we'll see. <laughs> Let me say this, start. The Christian church has always stood for life. It's always been who we are. I have to say that because sometimes you'll hear people say that the church has been ambiguous on this subject. We haven't been ambiguous, only since the sexual revolution in the West. But for two millennia, we have stood for life. And the reason we've stood for life is because we understand that all human life is in the image of God and therefore all human life matters the life of children, the life of women, the life of minorities, the life of the poor, the life of the sick, the life of the elderly, the life of the orphan, all human life matters. And as Christians, we witness this to the world that we are to treat all human life as sacred. I'll give you just a couple of quotes. The earliest non-Christian writing that we have, we think is probably this work called the Didache. I say non-Christian, I should have said non-biblical. It's not in the Bible, but it's a Christian writing. I just want you to see already Christians were being taught, do not kill your child by abortion. A letter that was circulated about the same time, a Christian letter attributed to Barnabas, which it wasn't written by him, love your neighbor more than your own life and do not murder your child by abortion. I'm not going to read all of these. Clement of Alexandria, a very important figure in the late 2nd century, 
made the statement that women should not use abortive drugs because not only do you kill the child, but you kill your own self, your own feelings. I want you to know that for the first three centuries of the Christian faith, not one single Christian writer was pro-abortion, not a single one. Athenagoras, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Basil the Great, Jerome, the Apostolic Constitutions, John Chrysostom, Augustine, even when they were not sure how to talk about whether a fetus is human. I just want to say this, Augustine and Aquinas both were following the work of Aristotle, and they really struggled with, at what point do we say this fetus is human? Even when they struggled with that question, they said, but we know that killing a baby in a womb is wrong. They had to go against culture. For the Greco-Roman world, the world of Greece and Rome, the cradle of the Christian faith, practiced abortion on a rampant scale. They typically did it through potions and poisons, but oftentimes simply by abandoning their babies. If a newborn was a girl, she was twice as likely to be thrown off a cliff. If she had any kind of deformity, she was going to be abandoned. And the early church was oftentimes accused of propagating faulty humans because the early church would go out and scour the landscape looking for abandoned babies to save. That's who we've been through the centuries. We're the people who stand up and witness every life is precious in the eyes of God. And therefore, every life is worth infinite value. Our pro-life position is grounded in this recognition that all human life is sacred. I'm, I'm moving quickly in a lesson. You can imagine the fact that there's so much that could be said in this, and I have, what, 36 minutes at the best? But I want to run through some scriptures pretty quickly that would just help us to appreciate what the scriptures teach us about the value of human life. The first one, sort of that archetypal text, that we were created in the very image of God. This is a foundational view for all of humans. I'm going to make this statement in just a moment. These are not just Christian positions. The truth is every human has a sense that we bear the image of God. This is why the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence says what? We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal, created equal, and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That is, even the deist Thomas Jefferson, who had a pretty low view of the Bible, understood that you cannot make arguments about human rights without presuming the existence of God and our image of God. For that reason, the Scriptures bear witness to what is a universal human truth. I'll make the statement in a moment. Let me make it now. We don't believe this because it's in the Scripture. It's in the Scripture because it's true. And so Psalm 119, God's hands are the ones that made us and formed us. Or Isaiah 44, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, He's the one who forms us in the womb. Psalm 139, this beautiful text about how God knit us while still in the mother's womb. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in the mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Continuing on, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was woven together in the depths, you saw my unformed body. All the days for me were written in your book. When God called Jeremiah, he said to Jeremiah, before I even formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. When Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptizer, saw Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, what happens? John the Baptist, the baby, leapt for joy in the womb. He wasn't a mass of tissue. 
He was a human. He was a human that already understood he was in the presence of a divine Savior. Paul says this, when Paul, even before he was born, was in his mother's womb, God set him apart for a particular mission. And then there is, of course, the most important birth of all, Mary impregnated by none other than the Holy Spirit and Jesus in Mary's womb as that divine person. What I want to argue is that the Scripture's witness to that which we all understand intuitively to be true, that humans have a divine nature to us. As I said, there's no reason to talk about human rights if you don't understand that we are in the image of God. Chemicals don't have rights. Rocks don't have rights. Humans have rights. And the reason we have rights is because we have a sacred quality, a divine image to us. And I want to say this. Since Friday, I've seen quite a few tweets, heard quite a few folks say, that's your Christian position. Don't bind your Christian position on the rest of us. So I want to make sure you understand something. Things are not true because they're in the Bible. It's actually a rich discussion of this through the, the last thousand years. Does the Bible describe that which is true, or is it true because the Bible said it? And there's a lot of layers to that. Some fun discussion could be had. But I want to make sure you understand. It's not true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. The Bible is a map of a land that actually exists. And even without the map, the land exists. When the Bible speaks of the value of human life, it's true even if the Bible doesn't say it. The Bible's merely describing that which is already true. What that means is we in this room are not pro-life because we're Christians. We're pro-life because we're humans. And the Christian message simply calls all humans to acknowledge that which is written in our souls, that human life has infinite value. We're pro-life in the Scriptures because it's true. Protecting life is not a Christian imperative. It's a human imperative. That's a really important point. Let me give you an illustration of how we know this to be true. When I was, I had to take German for my last college degree. I had to take four foreign languages, which was miserable. But as I was working with German, um, I was using a German dictionary, and this German dictionary, so this is 25 years ago, it was 1994, so it would have certain words, and then behind, after the word, it would have in brackets, N period, S period, N period, S period. I didn't know what that meant, so I go and look up, what's, why is it that a German dictionary has behind some words, N period, S period, and I realize that means uh, national socialist. In other words, that's the Nazi definition of this words. You know why the Nazis had their own definitions of words? Because they had to play games with people's souls in order to pull off the evils they pulled off. So, for example, in the Nazi definition of a Jew, a Jew is not a human. Now, why would a Nazi want to say that a Jew is not a human? Because they know if you say a Jew is a human, you're not going to kill him. In the Soviet Union... In the Soviet Union, there was an entire class of people called former human. Now, why would the old Soviet Union want to define some people as formerly human? And the answer is because they know you will not support the killing of them if you think they're human. Sound familiar to those of us in the American South? Once I remember as a child, only once I remember this, and it's enough to make me want to vomit still, Two white southern adults discussing whether 
Those of you who are black, forgive me. I don't want to trigger you. Let me say it. Two white adults raising the question, do blacks have souls? I heard that as a child. You know what they were trying to do? They, were, they knew that if they could say that blacks don't have souls, then they would be free to treat them however they wanted. But if they admitted that blacks had souls, then they owed them justice and humane treatment. That's the despicable legacy, by the way, that we still have burdening us today. What I want to say is people redefine what it means to be human because we all know written across our souls that it is unjust to kill another human. That's why, by the way, when the argument goes on about abortion, you'll hear if the child is going to be born, we call it a baby. And if the child's not going to be born, we call it a fetus. We're redefining words so as to escape the implications of what we all know to be true. And this spills over into this whole debate about when life begins, which is in a lot of ways a silly debate. Here's the deal. Human life began at creation and it has never ceased. So I'm going to use... Um, soft language. I'm going to bolderize this a little bit. When a man's seed fertilizes a woman's egg, that's not, life didn't begin there. Life began at creation. The, the seed and the egg were already alive. I'm really struggling not to say all the other words. <laughs> they were already alive. The question isn't when does life begin? We knew it began at creation. The question is when does new human life begin? And the answer to that is not a puzzle. It's not an enigma. There's no scientific question about when a new human life began. It began when the man's seed fertilized the woman's egg. A new human life began. The only reason you would say it's not a new human life is if you intended to kill it. And then you would want to define it as something else because written across the souls of all of us is that sense that all human life is sacred. So my point is to say the starting point for our position is all human life is sacred. And that's not a Christian position. That's not me imposing my religion on you. No more so than it would be imposing my religion on you if I were to say that murder is wrong. That's a human position not a Christian position. And that means that we must stand against abortion and stand for the unborn. I want to share a few scriptures with you again here. Let me start in Genesis 9, right after the flood. God speaks to humanity through Noah and he says, listen, here's the rule. Here's how it's going to work. I'm from each human being, I'm going to hold you accountable for the blood of other humans. I will demand accounting, he says, from the life of another human being. Whoever sh sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has created humanity. This text is simply affirming that God holds us accountable when we kill other humans. That's why one of the fundamental Ten Commandments is very simple, do not kill. Why Exodus 23, do not put an innocent or honest person to death. I will not acquit the guilty. By the way, I want to say this. There will be a day of reckoning for the United States of America for the 63 million children we killed since Roe v. Wade. There will be a day of reckoning. This is my opinion, what I'm about to say. It doesn't have to be yours, but I think I'm right. I think so many of the social ills we face today are still the reckoning of centuries of slavery that God is still looking down on us and he said, I'm holding you accountable for what you did. 
God holds people accountable for the shedding of innocent blood. Deuteronomy 27 curses anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, and the people to say amen. This text helped us sort of put the whole question in a bigger context. And this is something I really want to say. I want to remind you that our position is a big position. That is, we stand for justice and mercy for all humans. The big concern in Scripture is that we show justice and mercy to everyone, that we show it to the widow. Think about Jesus. In Jesus' day, you may not even recognize how revolutionary it was for Jesus to put children on his lap. For us, it's no big deal. In Jesus' day, children were property. They weren't human yet. And Jesus treats them like humans, even babies. Rabbis would never speak to a woman. What does Jesus do but interacts with women and calls them in as his disciples? What he's doing is modeling for us an entire approach to life where every human gets valued, every human is treated with justice, every human is given mercy, where we actually live out the way God first intended humanity to live way back in the Garden of Eden, where the sick are cared for, where people are not abused, where there's no assault, where there's no racism. He's calling us to model that kind of life. And in that context is also our love for and concern for the unborn. That's why in the prophets, which constitute some of the loftiest language in all of history, we get this intense concern for the people who are the underdogs. And God says, I want you to care for the underdogs. Pay closest attention to the underdogs. Here's just one word, Isaiah 58. Isn't the kind of fasting God says, when I tell you to fast, isn't the best fast, not just avoiding certain foods or staying away from Coke, isn't the best fast to loose the chains of injustice? Isn't the best fast to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break their yoke? Isn't it to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away your own flesh and blood? These are the loftiest words written, and it's a call for not just Christians, but for all of humanity to see the humanity in one another. See the humanity in the old. See the humanity in the dying. See the humanity in the widow and the orphan. The humanity of the person in the country plagued by war and famine. And see the humanity in the unborn. See the humanity. This is what Mother Teresa was actually best known for. This woman who died, by the way, the, the same year that the Princess of Wales died, was invited to speak in 1995 at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. There was the president, dignitaries, you know, the best of the press, they, I assume, expected her to get up and give some sort of Toastmaster speech. <clears throat> they didn't know who she was. Instead, she got up and lit into abortion. She, it was her chance to address the United States of America. I want to tell you just a few things she said. She said, by abortion, this is her speaking to America, by abortion, the mother learns, no, does not learn to love, but she learns to kill even her own child in order to solve her problems by abortion. The father is told he doesn't have to take responsibility for all for the child he's brought into the world. He can just kill him. And then she said, any country that accepts abortion 
is not teaching people to love, but to use any violence to get what they want. Y'all give me a second. Interviewed, she was interviewed in um, 1989 for Time Magazine. And the journalist who interviewed her said, you speak a lot about the decline of the West, Europe and the US. Why do you speak on this? And this to me, one of the world's most historic quotes. She said, I always say one thing. If a mother can kill her own child, then what is left of the West to be destroyed? She's making such a plain observation that every life should matter. And that's why we take a pro-life stand. We speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. We speak for the rights of all who are destitute. We speak up, we judge fairly, we defend the rights of the poor and the needy. We rescue those who are being led away to death. We hold back those who are staggering towards slaughter. And if you say, but we did not know about this, doesn't he who weighs the heart perceive this? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? It is a warning that says, don't pretend like you didn't know what was going on. This is what my son was saying to me, Dad. Don't pretend like you didn't know. And in the New Testament, we're told this way. What kind of religion does God look for? The kind of music you have? Your church polity, these things matter. I don't mean to downplay them. But when James wants to sum up genuine religion, he says, you know what genuine religion looks like? It looks like caring for an orphan and a widow and keeping yourself unspotted before the world. And when Jesus launches his ministry in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, Jesus launches it by quoting from Isaiah. He says, this is who I am. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. These are Jesus' words, the opening words of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to whom? To the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim this, the year of the Lord's Jubilee. In each of these cases, what we're being taught is that we as humans have the privilege of seeing the humanity in one another and treating one another as human and, and honoring the image-bearing quality each of us bears. Now, that makes us pro-life, but I have to say, every ethical system has its dilemmas, and the Christian faith is no exception. There are dilemmas in the Christian faith. If you work in healthcare. Surely your mind has run to all the exceptions and all the dilemmas, and you must surely think, well, he's a preacher, he's, he doesn't have to deal with what I have to deal with, and I will say, that's true, I don't, and, and I don't envy you. But I do want to address some of them. Some of them, I think, are pseudo-dilemmas, and others are real, genuine dilemmas. I'm just going to hit them very quickly. Ethical dilemmas that a pro-life position might raise. The first one is, can you be against abortion but also be for the death penalty? I just want to say a simple word about this. The execution of adults who've been duly convicted of a capital offense and the targeting of innocent babies for death are in no way similar. We need to start there. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm for the death penalty. I have my own opinions on that. You don't care. I'm not going to go into it. But I will say this is probably said to confuse the issue. That is, there are times where the Bible commands the death penalty, where God can say, do not kill, and says, but in these cases, I want you to kill. 
But in no case are we to kill an innocent person. Certainly not an innocent baby. How about this one? Abortion and social programs. This has been said quite a bit since Friday. If you're really pro-life, you will also support a host, a raft of social programs, or you're not really pro-life. Now, let me say, there are a lot of social programs I support. Um, A lot of them I'm really happy we have, Uh, even though they're not perfect. By the way, I'll just tell you one. I'm really glad that an insurance company can't drop you when you have cancer. And you know, it wasn't that long ago they could. And right now, I'm really glad we have a social program that says you can't treat people that way. So, so I just, I'm not trying to go too far into this, but I just want to say this. We need to have the ethical acumen, the ability to differentiate between timeless, eternal, universal principles and local compromised policies. They're not the same. So, for example, you can stand opposed to the killing of babies and still not vote for universal health care. You can hold both truths. One is a timeless moral imperative. The other is a local political judgment. Now, you may still be for one, and you may say, the implication of my faith leads me here, but don't let yourself be confused over these. Next, what about a woman's right over her own body? We do have bodily rights. We're born with bodily rights because we are in the image of God. Men and women have bodily rights. But both men and women, when we create other humans, voluntarily give up some of our rights for the sake of another human. You have a right not to have sex. You have a right not to get pregnant, and you have a right not to get a girl pregnant. If you don't want a child, don't get her pregnant. But once you get her pregnant, you now have an obligation to give up some of your bodily rights to care for that child for the rest of that child's life. You entered into that relationship. So you're voluntarily giving up some rights. The only reason we have a problem with this is because since the sexual revolution, since the 1960s, we've somehow separated sex from babies. We have teenagers up here. Allow me to be one of the first to tell you sex leads to babies. They're not separate. And once you start having sex, you're going to have babies. And once you do that, you're voluntarily giving up some of your rights to care for a baby. So by entering into these sexual relationships, we are acceding some of our rights. How about this one? I'm going to use, again, sort of bolerized language here, nice language, assault and incest. I want to say, first of all, this happens, and so we have to take it seriously. But I do want to say most of the abortions in the U.S. have nothing to do with this because I don't want us to chase this one so far that we lose sight of the guiding principle, the compass principle that we stand for life. Let me say this. These are tragic situations that require the utmost compassion, both of the state and the church. But I do want to say this. You don't punish an innocent person for the sin of the guilty. So in these cases, we punish the guilty and care for the innocent. That's what we do. That's the only right thing to do. And then the one that I think is most complex, certainly for me, an ectopic pregnancy, a septic uterus, or a miscarriage that, that doesn't discharge on its own, where a pregnancy has to be ended, that is, aborted. What do we say about this? So the ectopic pregnancy, for example, when a fetus attaches not to the uterus, but let's say to the fallopian tube. In that case, the mother will most likely die, and so will the baby. 
Some of you have faced this. I don't know the percentage. I tried to look it up. It's all over the map. I think the most generous percentage that I found in my short research since Friday afternoon when I decided to do this, maybe 2% of American pregnancies are ectopic like this. That is, they end up, the mother and the baby are going to die. I want to tell you what I think the Christian principle is. The loss of one life and the earnest and careful effort to save another is not evil. That is, when we have to make a choice, somebody's going to die, then we are careful and prayerful, and we do what we have to do. And we're not sinning when we do. We need to say that because some of you have faced that circumstance, and others of you will, and some of you work in careers where you're going to have to make these decisions probably pretty often. What we need to say is when we're faced with the decision who dies here, it becomes very complicated, and I'm not going to judge that. I don't, I, don't, I don't want us to judge that. What we don't want to do, however, is use it as an excuse for becoming lapse in the protection of human life. Now, those are the dilemmas as I see them. And let me end with just a few principles that I think are really important for us, not just as Christians, but as witnesses to the world of the better way that God offers each of us. First, stand for a life from conception, from conception to resurrection. Let me just say again, if the church is perceived only to wake up on one issue, abortion, it compromises our witness to the world. I want the world to look at us and say, look at how many people they care about. I want the world to look at us and say, they care about the widows of that place. They care about the sick. They care about people who are in uh, long-term and under permanent health care. They care about people who have been hurt and wounded. They care about people who have been damaged or assaulted. They care about women who have been the victims of domestic violence. That we care about all of life. That's the message of the Christian faith to the rest of the world. Care about all of it. And don't be perceived as only caring about those which might feel politically um, expedient for you. Second, let me remind you one of the greatest gifts we have to offer to the world is the right view of sexuality. One man, one woman in a married, committed relationship for life. I want you to know that's what changed the Roman world. In the Roman world, even we haven't reached levels of depravity that the Roman world knew sexually. And in the middle of that, the church stood up and said, we have a better way. It took them three centuries to do it. But after three centuries, the world changed. We can offer that to the world. That's a better message than the world tells itself. That is, God has a purpose to our sexuality, and it's good, and it's beneficial, and it's holy and sacred. And then third, I would say, refuse to be propagandized. Try to see through the lies that are told to us. And I just want to say, probably everybody propagandizes, but I'm particularly concerned about the propaganda that we get from those who support abortion. Things like hiding what's really happening. What's really happening in most abortions is so graphic and violent that I'm not going to tell you about it right now, especially since we have children in here. I'll tell you this. There was a British producer who was doing a show, a program, a documentary on abortion, a pro-abortion documentary. And for whatever reason, she had never thought about what actually happens in an abortion. She took her camera crew in. They were going to do an abortion. And as she stood and watched and realized what is actually happening, she began to vomit, ran out of the room and canceled the project. She was unable to see what actually happens. The propaganda wants you to think it's just a blob of tissue doesn't mean anything. Don't listen to the propaganda. 
The propaganda wants you to think it's a fetus if you're not going to keep it. It's a baby if you are going to keep it. It's propaganda. Even the word choice, it's a propaganda term. That we're not talking about a choice. We're talking about a life here. I just want to encourage us, don't fall for the propaganda. Keep your compass true. We can stand for life. And I want to say again, stand with the poor, stand with the oppressed, stand with the hurting. And in this line, I want to tell you who, in my opinion, were the world's biggest heroes Friday morning. Those of you who have adopted the world's biggest heroes. Because they're the people who put their money where their mouth is. And I want to say, I want to say, I've, I've not done my part to help North Boulevard become friendlier to, more welcoming of this, and really raising the expectations. And I regret that. Again, my son's words are haunting me. That we really need to cultivate a bigger environment where adoption is the norm and where we care about people's children. That is kind of who we are. You know, we started a, a scholarship for adoptions at North Boulevard, and we're offering it to anybody. Let us know. Contact Joe Roberts. But we really want that kind of a culture. That's who we are, not just as Christians, right? As humans, that's who we are. The Christian message is the human message, and that's why it's so beautiful. And then I'll say this. There are some of you in this room who have had an abortion. That is, you paid for a girlfriend or you forced a daughter to do it. And I hope you feel grief over that. You should. I'm not trying to deride you here, but you should. As some of you women who have. Can I say this? Where I am in my life right now, all of my sins have come before me. And they talk to me every night. And I have to remind myself of this text. It is from Psalm 103. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so is his love for me. And as far as east is from the west, that's how far he's removed my sins from his presence. So all of us in this room have one thing in common. We're all sinners. None of us has any reason to be proud. And so all of us can receive the grace of God for the things we wish we hadn't done. And we can be a community that offers grace and support to one another. Not just because it's Christian, right? But because it's human. And the Christian message is a human message. It's a witness to all of humanity. You won't, most of you who are younger know this name. Bernard Nathanson, some of you who are older might remember the name. Bernard Nathanson, as his name implies, was Jewish. He was an OBGYN, one of the most renowned OBGYNs of the 1960s. He wasn't a believer. I say he was Jewish. That matters in my story because he was not a believer. He wasn't a Christian, certainly wasn't a Christian. He called himself an atheist. In the 1960s, he built the largest independent abortion clinic in the world in New York City. He oversaw 60 thousand abortions and personally performed 5,000 abortions, including an abortion on his girlfriend in which he terminated the life of his own child. He was a co-founder of NARAL, N-A-R-A-L, National Abortion Rights Activist League. He was one of the plaintiffs, or one, uh, I should say he was counsel to one of the plaintiffs in Roe v. Wade. He was one of the chief strategists to convince America 
that abortion is a good thing. So many of his strategies have become part of the wolf and the weave of American abortion industry. Until the um, sonograms came out. In 1975, he was doing an abortion, and he had somebody come in. Sonogram, right? Am I using the right word? All of a sudden, my brain's lost the word. Ultrasound, thank you. Ultrasound. Sonogram didn't sound right. He had someone do an ultrasound while he was performing an abortion. And even he was shocked. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. He set his instruments down and walked away. And over the course of the next couple of years, Nathanson said, I have, these are his words, created a barbaric nation. And he spent the rest of his life fighting against abortion. In fact, in 1985, he produced a documentary. This is the one, if you know anything about him, this is what you'll remember. His documentary was entitled The Silent Scream, and it simply showed the images of babies being aborted in their mother's womb. He was an atheist until 1998. Yeah. He had viciously assaulted the church. He was the one who told the world, if you don't like pro-life people, they're all Christian, target them. And he ended up sitting down with a Christian who started talking to him about the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And in 1998, Bernard Nathanson was baptized into Jesus Christ. And when he died in 2011, he died a forgiven man in Jesus Christ who honored and valued the image of God in all humans. And my prayer for the United States of America is that we have that same awakening, that we all wake up and say, what were we thinking? Every human deserves to be treated as an image, image bearer of the one true God. So guys, I've given it to you. I'm calling Deuteronomy 30 and 19 now. This day I've called the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life.